Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Welcome to CBC this morning. If we haven't met, I'm Charlie. Find me after the service. If you're watching online, we just got a text actually this morning from one of the guys that plays on the worship team, him and his wife, with some other people from this church at an island called Turks and Caicos. And their view this morning is the beach. And I said, oh, you're missing out, but they didn't believe me. So welcome. You guys are watching this morning as we dive into, we're in the second half of the Ten Commandments this morning. We're rounding towards home. We have four weeks left. And just to kind of give you context for where we're going, after we get done with this, we start our fall launch sermon series, which is four weeks, and it's entirely dependent upon the questions you guys send in. It's it's sermon questions at crossroadsbible.org. We need your questions. It's It's a month long where we can talk about how the ways of Jesus directly apply to our problems in everyday life. Hopefully that's something that happens every week at CBC, but just in case, we're taking a month. And here's the deal. If you guys don't send in questions, I get to ask and answer my own. Like, for example, are the Dallas Cowboys really God's team? Yes, they are. That's one Sunday, all right? So you send in questions or I have my own questions. I promise yours will be better than mine. Send those in. That's going to be great, man. I'm excited for that series. This morning, as we talk about the uh, commandment in front of us on do not commit adultery. A little light summer reading, everybody. Uh, as we bring this up, I, I just want to start by saying that this topic is hard. Sometimes this topic elicits a lot of guilt and shame. That is not the intent this morning. What I want to do before we get into it is have a conversation on God's intent behind this commandment and his hope for what this can be if we live it out well. So, so we see a better, fuller, more beautiful picture of God. And so before we get into any of this, we're just going to pray that the Spirit might encourage us this morning, not discourage us. That, that the Spirit of God might show us a picture of, of the hope we have in a God who's faithful. That the Spirit of God this morning might show us a bigger, fuller, richer picture of why the gospel is good. As we get into scriptures, each week we have this phrase that the move of the Spirit is inward toward conviction, not outward toward critique. It's our goal this morning that as the Spirit convicts us, we see a God who's worthy of worship. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray with me before we dive in. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. I'm thankful that we can spend time talking about the ways and rhythms that you created this world to flourish in, function in, live in. As we talk about one of those today, it's my hope and prayer that we don't see shame, but we see the goodness of a loving God. So Holy Spirit, just lead us this morning and teach us. If you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and say a prayer and ask that the Spirit might lead your spirit into an understanding of God this morning that is good and beautiful. And also, I see you pray for me as I talk about this commandment that my words are unifying and not divisive, that they're grace-filled, not shame-filled, and that we see more of God today.
pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen. So I think that there are things we say we value as a people and there are things we actually value as a people. I'll give you a couple examples from my life. I said for years, it's on my bio on the CBC webpage that I am a foodie, that I value good food, that I'll drive for good food. There was a sandwich shop in Dallas that recently closed down because of COVID and it was my favorite sandwich in the area. And I would often drive to Dallas just for a sandwich on a Tuesday and drive back, right? And sometimes people would look at me and say, are you crazy? And I'd say, no, it's worth it. It's worth driving for good food. I value good food, but here's the truth. Now with two kids and life being chaotic, most of my meals were what falls on the floor for my kids' plates at night. Last night it was mini corn dogs that I had to blow the dirt off of. That is my actual value. I say I value good food, but really most days it's just getting by, you know? Take it a step in a more serious direction. We just did a series on Sabbath and a sermon on Sabbath. I value the idea of weekly rest to show that I don't control the things I think I can control. I struggle with living out Sabbath. I do. I'm not good at it. Most weeks I don't take one. I'm learning and growing with you. Ask my wife. I'm going to try to get better at it. I say I value Sabbath, but my life oftentimes paints a different picture than the values I say that I hold. So when we come to this commandment, do not commit adultery. As a people, as a nation, this is a value that we hold pretty tightly to. Since the 1960s, there's been a sexual revolution that valued and emphasized the individual's rights to sexual proclivity at the expense of any kind of sexual overarching morality. What I meant by that is simply since the 60s, what we've seen is an increasing value in individual and sexual freedom at the cost of a passed down sexual morality from any kind of deity, any kind of overarching authority. We've seen that grow except for adultery. There was a poll done between 2001 and 2013 by Gallup. You know what it found? It found that in all other areas of sexual activity, we had grown in our progressiveness as Americans, except for one. 7% thought that adultery was a fine idea in 2001, and 7% thought it was a fine idea in 2013. Meaning that systematically, if we're asked one another, do we value infidelity inside of marriage? Everybody would say no. That's what we say we value. But rates of adultery have risen dramatically since 1970. Rates of infidelity have dri- has risen dramatically since the dawn of social media platforms, since it's been much easier to connect with people we normally wouldn't have connected with. We say that we don't like infidelity, but I'm willing to bet six out of ten TV shows we watch somewhere that's woven in the narrative of the plot line and the characters that we follow As a people, we say we don't value fidelity, but it seems like our actions and what we watch tell a different story. It seems like we put up with it quite a bit. And look, this is not, I'm not here to say that you need to drastically change what you watch on TV. That is low-hanging fruit. That's a conversation you have with the good Lord, all right? Because there's a lot of intent that goes into that. I'm simply saying, I think that we've allowed the idea of adultery to pervade into our lives more and more. And now's a good time to stop to redefine it, and to maybe capture all over again why God thinks it's a really bad idea. Because the Ten Commandments were there to make Israel different. They were this list of laws that made them radically different than the people around them. Like, for example, Sabbath. No one in the A&E, in the ancient Near East, no one in those cultures, the Hittite culture, the Sumerian culture, the Babylonian culture, the Mesopotamian culture, nobody thought it was a good idea not to work one day a week. Israel was radically different. 
Nobody in those cultures thought it was an okay idea only to worship one God. You worshiped one of many gods. Nobody thought it was a good idea in a couple weeks to get to the place where you didn't covet or steal. Those were radically different ideas in the Israelite narrative. Adultery actually was a shared idea of badness in our culture, in all cultures then, but the why is different. For example, the Code of Hammurabi is one of the oldest set of laws that we have on the books. It's from the sixth dynasty of the Babylonian culture in the roughly 1800 BCE reign or realm. This is what it says. It says about adultery, if a man's wife should be seized lying with another man, they shall bind him and cast them into the water. If the wife's master allows him to live, the kings shall allow his subject to live as well, but death is warranted. The Hittite laws and the Sumerian laws both allocate capital punishment for adultery. In the ancient Near East, the sexual relationship between a man and the woman outside of someone that is their spouse was considered defined as adultery, which you see is a common thread of adultery being a bad idea in any culture, any time, any place. So I want to ask why before I get to what makes Israel different. Seemingly, the Old Testament laws and the ancient Near East laws simply defined adultery as sleeping with someone, finding sexual fulfillment outside of your spouse. But then Jesus came along. You know the quote? Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. You guys want to know one of my most embarrassing teaching moments? Dang it. All right, so I, uh, sometimes when you're young and you don't have a lot of content, you say crazy things to make it seem like you made a difference. So I'm, I'm teaching a group of high school students. I'm in Chicago. I'm in college. I'm the cool college guy that's leading these kids towards the way of Jesus, and I get this passage. And we're in a small group setting, and I'm talking through it, and I'm like, guys, look, here's the deal. If you've thought lustfully about somebody else, Jesus says you might as well just go ahead and do it. <laughs> The other adult said, no, 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 no. That is not what it says. And I was like, I was trying to make a point. And they're like, not a good point, Charlie. Not a good point. And I thought, that's probably right. You know? What Jesus is doing is saying, in one sense, you've missed the point and purpose of adultery if we simply limit it to physical actions. That phrase in Matthew, lustful intent in verse uh, 28, it means desire to covet or to long for. What it doesn't mean is that I can't think anybody else is attractive. That is fine and good. God is a good man and a good God who, who makes beautiful things. I love what Martin Luther said about temptation. He said, you can't help the birds from flying over your head, but you can help it if they make a nest in your hair, you know? It's the idea that when it talks about the temptation of adultery and lusting after, it's if it stops us down and we start to picture or romanticize or even covet sexual relationship outside of our spouse in any form because God cares about adultery. And we're going to talk about why. What, what he does is he broadens the range from the ancient Near East understanding of it's not just about your physical actions. This is what Jesus does. He fulfills the law by saying, I want your heart and your physical actions. I want way more of you than just some of you. I want all of you. It's a greater call into good and discipleship. It's because he actually loves us. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, adultery occurs in the head long before it occurs in bed. 
And what this does, and I can run down the list now of, of stats on pornography in the United States. It's something like 86% of people look at it once a week. And I can give you, it's, it's about 35% of all the downloads on the internet every single day. That's nuts to me. It's crazy. But, but here's what the point and purpose of this passage goes to. It's that adultery goes beyond just the physical action as followers of Jesus. It goes into any time we long for someone else, we lust after someone else that isn't our spouse because it tells the wrong story about God. And this is what hits home, is that none of us are exempt from this conversation. None of us. Stats would tell me that about one in five marriages deal with this on a real level. About 20% of guys and 15% of women are going to have an affair at some point in their marriages. What this conversation is about is not simply if you've had an affair or not. It's about how we view fidelity in the first place. When we talk about this commandment, none of us are exempt from this conversation because fidelity is far more than just physical action. It's a desire, it's a longing, it's a mindset. And it's there that you might flourish. So why does God say in the first place, don't commit adultery? It's because he cares about you. Sex is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And the church as a whole, I don't think has done a great job historically of dealing with this powerful issue. So I feel like we fall into one of two camps. We either ignore it, deny till you die, and don't talk about it, or we talk about it way, 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 way too much, and we make it the point of conversation. I am a child of the 1990s True Love Waits Christian movement where sexual purity is the thing closest to godliness. And there's cons and pros from that we're not going to get into today. But just so you guys know, historically, until about the Reformation, the church didn't do well talking about sex. They didn't do well addressing the power of sex in the, for the people of God. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Tertullian, who was a church father and one of the absolute most influential early church uh, historians and theologians, we have so much of his theology that we still see today as we think uh, and meditate on the ways of God. He regarded the extinction of the human race as preferable to procreation. Ambrose, who was a bishop of Milan in about the 300s, said that the married couples ought to be ashamed of their sexuality. Augustine was willing to admit that intercourse might be lawful, but taught that sexual passion was always a sin. Many priests concluded that couples need to abstain from sex completely. By the time of the Reformation in, in the 1500s, the Catholic Church began to prohibit sex on certain holy holidays. And by the 1500s, the time of Luther and the Reformation, that list of prohibited days of sex for the holy holidays was 183 a year. Yeah. And then the Puritans came in. And I've never been more happy about the Puritans than this moment. <laughs> The Puritans came in and they said, whoa, I think God celebrates this thing that he made for our good. They read Song of Solomon for like the first time ever and said, wait a second, this isn't just recreational, it's fun because God doesn't just make food healthy, he makes it taste good because he loves you. It's an adverbial process on how much he cares for your flourishing and fulfillment. This life is not supposed to only be a drag, there's supposed to be joy because God created you to be joyful. So they came along and they said, what if we treated sex like a good and powerful gift that binds together the people of God? Culturally, we have tended and tried to divorce sex from marriage lately. Since the 1960s, there's been this movement to say that sex is something that can be enjoyed and maybe even should be enjoyed outside of marriage. But what's the cost of that? 
one pastor and writer that I really appreciate his name, Dallas Willard, and he says, reality is what we run into when we're wrong. And so the question we have to ask is, is our newfound definition of sexual fulfillment and freedom really good for us? He goes on to say that reality does not adjust itself to accommodate false beliefs, errors, hesitations, or hesitations in action. His point there is simply saying in terms of, and John Mark Comer talks about this at length in his book, Live No Lies, and in the second chapter, I think, Ideas Weaponized, he says basically that our sexual ethic has led to a place of less fulfillment, not more. That even though we teach that the best good is your individual sexual freedom, what if it's not? Because God says this about sex when it first burst on the scene in Genesis 2. He says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It's this beautiful passage that says that there's a spirituality that enjoins our sexuality. And I love the passage. They were naked, and they didn't feel ashamed. It's a beautiful description of what happens if we view and live sexuality out in the way that God designed it to go. And so what we see is a culture that says sex is more transactional and a God that says sex is more powerful. So why I say all this about sex is because simply God says, don't commit adultery because this thing's powerful and it's only, only, only meant to be contained inside of committed relationships. Sex is way, way too powerful for casual encounters. It's this depiction of this thing that God made that God made and designed and developed to join people together. Some writers would say sex is like superglue. Tim Keller says it's the covenant cement that helps hold all marriages together and secure. And science shows that. Sex releases oxytocin and valpressin. They're two chemicals that bring our attachment system online and cause people to bond to other people, which you can't do when talking about sex, is say that it doesn't have something that happens outside of the physical moment. What you can't do is say that it doesn't attach two people together in ways beyond just physicality. So, so, so when God says don't commit adultery, you know what he's doing? He's trying to fight for our marriages. Whether it's physically or mentally, whether it's online or in person, when he says don't commit adultery, what he's doing is saying if you lust after people that aren't your spouse, that super glue that holds your relationship together will start to slowly, slowly, slowly become unsticky. It'll put cracks in the most fundamental and foundational relationship in your life because that's what the relationship between man and woman is in, in, in marriage. It is the most foundational relationship in the lives of people. It's what societies were built on. I could give you stats and throw numbers out at you about how, you know, the most important relationship in any family, and this is not just Jesus people saying this, this is all sorts of secular psychologists saying this, that your most important relationship in a healthy family is a relationship between the spouses. There are articles upon articles that say that if you want the best version of your kids, let them see how well your relationship flourishes between man and wife. If you want well-adjusted kids, love your wife well. If you want well-adjusted kids, love your husband well. Take time to develop that relationship over and above all because it leads to better kids, but also your kids, hopefully, are going to go away for a little while one day. Millennials not included, but, but I hope. I'm kidding, I'm millennial. Um, 
But the foundational relationship that's fundamental to the flourishing of our societies is the relationship between the husband and wife and what adultery does is put cracks in the cement, in the concrete, in the foundation of your marriage. So, so, so when God says don't commit adultery, it's because he cares for you. It's because he cares for your flourishing. It's because he knows that relationship outside of your relationship with God is the one that has the ability to most flourish you and your family. That's why Proverbs puts it like this. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. But beyond that, if you see the breakdown of the family unit, if adultery breaks down the most fundamental relationship in our families, when the family unit breaks down, so does society. Adultery is the number one cause of divorce in our country and most countries. And you see profound effects on kids after that profound effects on society at large after that. Because in the ancient Near East, when and where this is written, the family was the fundamental unit for all societies. I don't think much has changed now. We can pretend it hasn't, but it's still God's design as the fundamental unit for all of our flourishing. Look back to a few weeks ago and Nick talked about uh, commandment number five. So, so if we want to be the people that God called us to be, if we want to flourish as a people, it starts within our families. It begins with the relationship we have with our spouse. Do not commit adultery. It's because God cares about you. It's because he cares about our families. But outside of the, the Israelite culture, even secular societies recognize this. In the ancient Near East, it was considered a threefold offense when you had an affair against the woman's husband, against the gods, and against society at large. Uh, the establishment of marriage is a given in the Near Eastern law. The institution of marriage was considered to be the glue that maintained the solidarity of civilization. Outside of the Israelite community, the Egyptian one specifically, it was known as the great sin because it broke down the fabric of all societies. Even in the scriptures, adultery is treated as a sin against God. It's an outrageous thing in Jeremiah 29. It's a detestable offense in Ezekiel. It defiles the man and the woman concerned, and it also pollutes the whole community that it needs to be purged. You see that in Deuteronomy 22. So, adultery is bad. <laughs> we know that. Adultery is bad because it fundamentally breaks the most foundational relationship in our families, in our societies. So God says, man, don't do this. You're going to hurt yourself. And it's way more than just physicality. It's, it's, it's way more than just sleeping with someone outside of your spouse. It has to do with how we think and what we want. God says, desire only your spouse because anything other than that fractures the relationship. It'd be enough if we stop there. We can get the band back up here, sing a song, bless you, we can go home, but we're not going to because it's only 1047. You haven't got your money's worth quite yet. <laughs> so I think there's a, a reason why adultery is listed in one of the Ten Commandments. I think there's a reason why he picks this one sexual sin out of all the sexual sins. And in the Old Testament law, there are several sexual sin talks about. There are several times that the Bible says, don't do this, don't do that, don't do these things sexually, and don't do these things sexually. Outside of the fact that this sin above others destroys the homes, I think that the law distinguished between adultery and sexual contact and fornication, if you will, sleeping with people um, outside of marriage, if you're not married, single people, single people, I think the law differentiates between adultery and fornication because they're fundamentally different things that tell us a different story about the character of a God who called his people to be different. 
I've heard this text taught quite a few times in the last month or so, and a lot of people use this text to go to sexual purity. And look, I think that's fine. I think sexual purity is a good thing. I think God values that, don't get me wrong. But I think adultery is different because it's more than just sexually purity because God wants us to be holy. Adultery is different because fundamentally, the marriage relationship throughout scripture is, is a microcosm of God's relationship with us. Fundamentally throughout scripture, what we see is the Bible compares marriage of the relationship between God and his people. The prophets frequently describe the relationship between God and his people in terms of a relationship between husband and wife. It was a small step to view infidelity to the covenant of spiritual uh, adultery. It says this in Jeremiah 13. I've seen your adultery and lust and your disgusting idol worship out of the fields and on the hills. What sorrow awaits you, Jerusalem? How long before you're pure? Ezekiel 23 says, they will strip you of your beautiful clothes and jewels. In this way, I will put a stop to the lewdness and prostitution you brought from Egypt. You never again cast longing into the eyes of those things or fondly remember your time in Egypt. It's saying, when you commit adultery, it talks about the bigger picture of how you view me as your God and only your God. Adultery is a social equivalent of the religious crime of having other gods. It's all about God's covenant with his people. There's a whole book about it in the Old Testament. You guys know the book of Hosea? It's really horribly sad book. And the reason this book exists is because God wanted a long-form view for the people of God to see how they cheated up. So if you don't know Hosea, the first three chapters give an outline of the whole book. And there's this prophet Hosea, and there's this woman, Gomer. And God says to Hosea, go and marry Gomer. And he does. And then Gomer leaves Hosea and cheats on him with several men. And Hosea says, God, why did you call me to marry this woman? If this was going to happen, I'm heartbroken. He said, now, sell the things that you have, pay off the men that she slept with around you, and go find her and marry her again. It's a pattern of God pursuing Gomer, of Hosea pursuing Gomer. And what it gets us to is this idea that God is saying to his people, this is me and you. You cheat again and again and again, and I continually faithfully fight for you and follow you. In Hosea 2, verses 19 and 20, it says, O Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips, and you will never mention them again. I will make you my wife forever, showing you my righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as Lord. If we're asking why adultery is such a big deal to God, outside of the fact that it breaks down the fabric and the foundation of our relationships and our families and our societies, if we're asking why it's such a fundamentally big deal to God, it's because it's an affront to his faithfulness, which is who he is. One of my favorite passages in this Exodus narrative that we're in, it's a few chapters down the road, is Exodus 34. It's, it's when Moses, Charlton Heston, comes down the mountain and he has the two stone tablets. And he sees his people. You know what they're doing? They're worshiping the golden calf. You know the story? And he gets so mad, he slams them on the ground. And he goes back up to the mountain to talk to God. 
God just saved his people, just drew his people out of 400 years of bondage, just did miraculous things, just buried the Egyptian army, the strongest army the world has ever seen and known. He brings them to this mountain to convene with his people to finally make a covenant saying, you are my people, I'm not letting you go. And the first chance they get, they cheat on God with another God. Moses comes down, sees this, gets overwhelmingly angry and goes back to God and says, can you believe they did this? And this is what God says in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. That word proclaimed there is interesting. That word proclaimed there, Martin Luther would say, is God preaching to Moses. And when God preaches, unlike Charlie, we listen, everybody, all right? God is preaching to Moses, and this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. One theologian says it's the single most important passage of the self revelation of God. You know what God does in this passage? He tells us who he really is. So if you could describe yourself in a sentence, what would you say? You might say things like, I'm talented at X, Y, and Z, or you see it all the time on Instagram profiles, like I'm a Jesus follower, I love good coffee, and I love travel, you know, (laughs) all those good things. See these descriptions of people, you know, I'm a foodie, I have three kids, uh, you know, all those things. Um, What God does here is, for the first time, he doesn't just give us his name. He says, this is how I describe myself. And when it says, Lord, Lord, it's the only time in the scriptures we see that. Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the only time in the scriptures we see God use his name twice. It means it's important. It means listen. It's like with my daughter, I can say Eleanor, and she just keeps walking. I say, Eleanor Jean, and she keeps walking. We're working on it, though. Um, It's more important. I mean, stop and listen. This is getting serious. He says to Moses, the only time and the first time, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, this is who I am. He says, I'm compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That word loyal love or that word abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. It's a concept in the Hebrew. It's a word formation that basically means these two words have one shared meaning together. The word loyal love there is how God describes his relationship to his people throughout the Old Testament. You see it about 250-ish times. And that word faithfulness there, the Hebrew word emet, simply means truth. It's where we get the expression amen from, like yes, that's right, that's true, that's good. The verb form of that is this person is trustworthy and good and unchanging. So when God describes who he is, what he's doing is saying that who I am is best seen through my loving faithfulness to my people. That never goes away. This is how God describes his very character. Why does God say don't commit adultery? Because adultery is an affront to the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of God is how he defines himself to us. And I am thankful because I need his faithfulness. Because like Israel, I have cheated on the God that I love again and again and again. We are a world of fleeting desires over faithfulness. You know that? And more and more we choose fleeting desire or faithfulness, whether it's adultery or whether it's jobs or whether it's restaurants or churches. We are driven by impulse over uh, long desires. I love one commentator's definition of faithfulness. He says, faithfulness is long obedience in the same direction in an age of instant gratification. I love that in our text, what we see is this beautiful picture that God is a faithful God above all else. It's what I need to see in a world that follows fleeting desires and elevates it above the value of faithfulness. Even though we say we value faithfulness, God actually does. 
Why does God say, do not commit adultery? Because it's for your good, (laughs) but it's also who he is. It's a fundamental bedrock of his character. It's how he describes himself to you and to me. There's this story of Jesus in John 8, and it's all about adultery. This woman's found caught in adultery, and they bring her in front of the people, and they said, let's stone her. She needs to die. That's what the law says. Jesus draws in the sand, and he gets up, and he says, hey, anybody, anybody that hasn't committed any, anything wrong can throw a stone. Anybody else needs to leave. And one by one, they drop rocks and go. This is the middle of an adultery situation, and Jesus looks at her and says, woman, where are your accusers? Did even one of them condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, neither do I go and sin no more. What I love about this passage on so many levels is it reveals the depth of the faithfulness of God to the people of God. It says, do not commit adultery, not do not commit adultery if it's deserved, or do not commit adultery if your wife or your husband is faithful, or do not commit adultery unless they didn't live into the disnification of marriage that you thought it should be. Do not commit adultery unless they're not your knight in shining armor and she's not your Cinderella. This simply says, do not commit adultery because there is nothing, 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 nothing the people of God did that stopped God from pursuing them. This text is all about the picture of God's faithfulness and fidelity in a culture that so often followed fleeting desires. It says, I'm your good and I'm never going to stop pursuing you. It's a beautiful picture of how God's faithfulness is far greater than any of our failures because it is who he is. Do not commit adulteries an affront to God's faithfulness. I love what 2 Timothy 2 says. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. He cannot deny who he is. So, don't commit adultery. It's all about saving your marriage and your family and your kids and our society, and that's good. Do that. But also, it's about so much more. This one commandment reflects the very character of God to the people of God and all the people around. Adultery is an affront to God's faithfulness. So why don't we commit adultery? (laughs) Because our fidelity shows the world God's faithfulness. Why don't we commit adultery? Because our fidelity shows the world a God who hasn't given up on it. Why don't we commit adultery? Because yes, it's good for us, but it also paints the beautiful picture of a gracious God that will never stop loving you, chasing after you, and wanting you to know him. Why don't we commit adultery? Because our fidelity, in our fidelity, people see God's faithfulness. And that's a story worth telling. It's way bigger than just you. It is about you. But it's way bigger than just being about you. So when God says don't commit adultery, why is it different? because it shows people his faithfulness in a world of fleeting, fle- following fleeting desires. We, we need to see it. So where does this leave us? I think for me, it's really encouraging. And this week as I've gotten into study and prep, as I think and read the prophets about the people of God who have cheated on God, it, 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 it's a gut punch, because I know I have too, like daily, you know? It reminds me that no matter how many times I cheat on God, God is not happy with it. That is not good. I don't want it. He's not going to stop loving me. (laughs) So for some of me in this room, it's just a simple reminder, this command of the power of God's faithfulness over my failures. Read Romans 5, 8 this week, that he loved you when he didn't deserve it at all. And sit in that. Just sit in it. That God's faithfulness is bigger than your failure. Sit in that. 
Because that then, that then creates this, this place of, of genuine love where we see the beauty of God's goodness and why he's worthy of all our worship. So how does this change how we see God? It changes because we see a God who consistently pursues so often in the culture of the church that we grew up in. We grew up in places where God's waiting for us if we just take that step forward. With all heads bowed and eyes closed, I see that hand come up to the front, you know? And so if we take a step towards God, God meets us right there. That's not the story of the scripture. The story of the scripture is we were standing still, running away from God, and God pursued us. Our God is a pursuer of his people. He is faithful. So maybe some of us just need to know the faithfulness of God in a culture that really doesn't value faithfulness. Two, how does this change how we deal with those other people around us? It's a much longer conversation, hopefully, we get into and the questions you're going to send in that are going to be really good. Thank you so much. Um, but, but we live in a place now, especially in our current culture and context, where it seems like if we disagree with people around us, we should disassociate with those people, you know? Politically or on medical stuff or, fill in, or on your favorite TV show on a Wednesday, if we disagree with each other, we need to disassociate with each other. I can no longer be friends with you if I disagree. The problem with that, the problem with that is it's not how God treats us, where faithfulness defines his character. So what I think that means for us as followers of Jesus is we're called to be faithful to people whether they agree with us or not, whether they annoy us or not, whether they have shared X, Y, and Z or not. I think what that means is we're called to be pursuers of people that don't know Jesus so that they might see a God who pursues them. Got to get away from this field of dreams Christianity. If you build it, they will come. Build a bigger church, more people will come, maybe not. It's our job to be faithful to people so that people see the faithfulness of God. It starts in marriages. It's a beautiful picture of how we're supposed to treat those outside of the kingdom of God that we are faithful in pursuing and that just because we disagree doesn't mean we disassociate. It's how we treat those around us. We love them fiercely and faithfully like God loves us. I think that's the story the world needs to hear right now of God, (laughs) that he's different than everything else, that he's different than the other narratives or authorities that say if you disagree, we disassociate, that he's different, that he fiercely, fiercely loves you and he's not going anywhere. You know, speaking of fidelity and divorce, there's a stat that gets thrown out there. You know, about 50% of marriages in this country end in divorce. And then without doing any more research, people say that Christianity falls in line with that. It doesn't. If you dive a little deeper, you realize that, that people that, that check a list of what it means to be a Christian, not just like, sure, God's not bad to me, but like actually believe some certain things about God and have God influence their life. The divorce rate is way lower, somewhere around 25-ish percent. Is it too high? Yes, but that's individual conversations. What that tells us is as Christians, we do a better job of telling the story of faithfulness. It tells us as Christians that we do a better job of telling the world there's another way to be than to leave. My, one of my favorite authors, it's got him, Hugh Halter. I've used this example before because it stuck out to me. Uh, somebody asked him one time, he started a church in Denver. He came from a megachurch, got tired of that, started a church in Denver because why would you not start a church in any city but Denver? And he started a, a church in Denver and um, his first year, he just wanted to make friends. And he defined friends by, you're a friend of mine if you introduce me to your friends. And that's a pretty good definition. So he had a goal to make 30 or so friends the first year. And he's making these friends, not Jesus followers, and this guy was having problems in his marriage, and they went to Hugh, and they said, hey man, um, your marriage seems really good. And he said, yeah, it is. We've been married for 20 years or so. And he said, can you tell me why? And, and this 
old pastor said, if I'm going to tell you why my marriage is good, I have to tell you about Jesus. I think that's a beautiful picture of the story that we need to tell about the God that we follow. That's worthy of worship. It's faithfulness that kicks the coverage of our failures. Do not commit adultery. <laughs> it's an affront to the character of God. It's good for you, but it's an affront to the character of God because in our fidelity, people see God's faithfulness. Might we, in our marriages, show people God's radical faithfulness? Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you're a faithful God. I'm thankful that in all situations and circumstances, when sometimes the faithfulness of God is easy to see and sometimes it's way harder to see, I'm thankful that in all those moments we know that you don't give up on us. I'm thankful that you care about our families and our marriages. Thankful that you call us to be loyal and faithful. As we do that as the church, God, I pray that people see a bigger picture more than just happy life, happy, happy wife, more than just healthy marriages and happy kids, but one that bases itself on the bedrock of a God who doesn't give up on us. So the world might see a God who's worthy of worship and who pursues them and says, this is good. Join me. I pray this is the name of God. Amen.